Man, oh man, so good to sing aloud those truths. Uh, Nathan, man, thank you for sharing your gifts. My, my, my soul is just filled uh, from that time of worship. I hope it's been a blessing to you online as well. Good morning. My name is Aaron. Welcome to Church Online. Uh, Lake Forest Church is a church for folks who've given up on church but not on God. That means there is room here for skeptics, spiritual explorers, and longtime followers of Jesus. And wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, we hope you have felt right at home here with us online. Well, worshiping reminds me that uh, we are so excited. We've been talking about this. You've probably heard beginning November 1st, we are going to be gathering in person again in our new partnership with Sally's Y right in the heart of Denver. Of course, we'll still be making church online available to those who would prefer to stay at home or, or need to be served that way, so you don't need to feel any obligation. But for those of you who are excited as I am to gather in person, I want to tell you just a couple things quickly. First of all, we're going to need you to register. All the info is available online. Uh, secondly, we are going to be wearing masks. So everyone five years old and older is going to be wearing masks. And yes, we are going to have our Kid Tropolis program running. And then third and finally, this month is our month where we highlight our value of serving. And just like we want everyone to have a place where they belong and do life with others here at Lake Forest Church, we also want everyone to have a team where they serve on, where they give back, where they share of their time and their talents for the needs of the church. And if you don't have a team, this is the perfect time to get on board. I want to encourage you to go to lakeforest.org. You'll be able to click on Westlake and on our page there under the service opportunities, there is a long list of things that you can get involved in. Would you consider joining a team to help us as we begin worshiping in person again this November. Well, we've been in a series called Money Talks, which is just kind of a fun way uh, to, uh, to get at kind of a touchy subject, isn't it? If our money could talk, what would it actually say to us? What would it want to tell us about itself? In other words, what would one money want us to know that maybe sometimes we get wrong or misunderstand about money? Now, of course, most of us kind of already know what money would say to us. This is not surprising. We know it would say things like, look, if you don't have me, don't spend me, right? Or maybe it would say to us, uh, more of me isn't going to make you happy. Or perhaps it would say, more money, more problems. Well, wait a second, that wasn't money. That was the notorious B.I.G. But you get the point. You get the point. The problem for us isn't that what would money say to us. The real problem is, are we actually listening? You see, the truth is, the real surprise is not what money would say to us if it could talk. The real surprise is how often it lines up with things that Jesus actually did say when Jesus actually did talk. In fact, you may know this already, but if you grew up in the church, Jesus actually said more about money than he did about heaven. He gave about 35 or 38 parables, depending on how you count them, these stories where he illustrated what the kingdom of God was like and what we're supposed to do in the meantime. And out of those 30-plus parables, 16 of them, get that, 16 of them have to do with money and possessions. But the interesting thing here, the, the, the shocking thing, because of the way we preachers tend to talk about money, the shocking thing is that Jesus never actually asked for money. He talked about it all the time, and he never asked for it, except for one time that we know of. He asked someone if he could borrow a coin for a minute. He did a little coin trick. No, I'm just kidding. He used it as an illustration, and as far as we know, he gave that coin right back to the person. So what is he up to? What is Jesus up to? What is this all about? And what 
can we discover when we read the Gospels about what Jesus had to say to us about money? Turns out, Jesus wasn't really after money at all. He was after something else entirely. Today, I want to look with you at something that Jesus said about money that we have all heard, but maybe we've never really considered what it means for our lives. It comes from the middle of Jesus' most famous sermon, something called the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew's Gospel, and it's really, really interesting. Jesus, in this sermon, is talking about prayer and worship and caring for the needs of the poor, and he's getting ready to talk about anxiety and worry and stress. And right at this middle point, he pauses, and he says this little line about money that is just brilliant and fascinating all at the same time. Trust me, you've probably heard this statement before, even if you didn't know it came from Jesus. Let me read this to you. This comes from chapter 6, verse 24. This is Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, the key word here in this verse is the word for master. It's the word kyrios, and it's most often translated as the word lord, but it can sometimes be translated as master. Now, we don't typically use this language of lord or master outside of our movies and our stories, but we still kind of get this language, don't we? You can't have two lords. You can't have two masters. This is what Luke Skywalker taught us, right? You can either serve Lord Vader or you can serve Master Yoda. But you can't have it both ways. And again, this is not surprising. We know this. We get this intuitively. But when Jesus gets to the last line of this little saying, no one expected him to fill in the blank the way he did. God and money. I mean, maybe, maybe we expect him to say, you can't serve both God and the emperor, or God and the devil, or God and the Houston Astros. I mean, these things are all clearly evil. But God and money? Really, Jesus? You see, the real shocker here is that Jesus seems to think that money and the quest for more of it is the chief competitor of our devotion. The chief competitor for his being Lord in our lives. It's not the devil. It's not your boss, even if those are the same thing. It's not even your smartphone. The thing that is most going to compete with God for your devotion, Jesus says, is money. You might think of it this way. It's almost as if Jesus is presenting his audience and you and me as well with this question. Jesus might put it this way. In other words, do you have money or does money have you? I want you to think about it for a moment. Some of you might be thinking, well, Aaron, I don't even have enough money in my pocket for it to have me. I have no idea what you're talking about. But Jesus isn't talking about whether you have money or not. He's talking about the desire, the quest. And the question is, Do we possess money, or is our money and our quest for more of it possessing us? You see, if our money could talk, it would say this to us today. I make a great servant, but I am a terrible master. You see, when money 
or the constant pursuit of more of it, becomes master in our lives, it always leads to the same place. It always leads to more anxiety, more worry, more stress, more relational disruption, and ultimately an unfulfilled life. And that's what Jesus wants us to see right here in his sermon. He knows how easy it is for money and the constant pursuit of it to creep into the center of our lives, into our hearts. And that's why he says it is the greatest competitor for our devotion. You see, at the end of the day, Jesus is not interested in your money. He doesn't need it. He wants something much more valuable to him. He wants your heart. He wants your devotion. He wants you. All of you. And if there is an area in your life that you have not surrendered to him, then he's not really the Lord, the master over that part of your life. So what are we to do? What are we to do with this teaching? I mean, if we really want Jesus to be Lord, I mean, that's what it means to be a Christian, right? It's not about getting some ticket, some free entry into some resort when you die. It's about surrendering your life to Jesus because you really believe, you really trust that he will lead you to real life. Now, if you're not a Christian today, I want to tell you, you are off the hook. You can keep listening today. In fact, I encourage you to, but you, none of this applies to you if you're not a Christian, if you haven't decided to make Jesus the Lord in your life. But for those of us who would identify as Christians, those who would raise their hands and say, we are trying to surrender to Jesus, what are we to do? Because this is a real conundrum, isn't it? I mean, this is a real problem for us. Well, again, this is where we experience the kindness of Jesus. Jesus is so good. He is so kind. Anytime Jesus confronts us with our own condition, he always gives us a way forward. That's his grace. And that's what he does in the Sermon on the Mount just a few verses later. And y'all, this is so brilliant. This is so amazing. Look with me at what he says in verse 33. He says this, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, all these other things, will be given to you as well. See, most of us have heard this verse before, but maybe you've never realized that it's actually within the context of money and stuff and worry and stress. And in this verse, Jesus is giving us a way forward, a way out of that. Jesus says, look, the way forward is to decide what's going to come first in your life and what's going to come second. In other words, it's all about priorities. You see, Jesus says, the way to keep money and the constant pursuit of it out of the driver's seat in your life is to prioritize something else over it. In other words, Jesus says, you want to get this right. You want to be free. You want to live a different kind of life. Then here's my invitation. And this is amazing. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to seek first my father's kingdom and his righteousness. I want you to seek first my father's others first, me second kind of kingdom. And of course, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. He sought first his father's kingdom by putting his needs second and our needs for his rescue and redemption first. So, Jesus knew 
what we all eventually figure out on our own, that somebody's kingdom has to come first. And we, when we put ourselves first, when we seek the me first kingdom, we eventually realize that we come in last. And when we put money first, when money becomes our master, the result is always anxiety, worry, and stress. So, Jesus says, here's the solution. We need to flip the script. We need to turn things around in a different order. Why? So that we can be free. So what does it look like when money comes first? Well, in our world, the typical order of the me first kingdom goes like this. Uh, Whatever money I make, I use for me, for my needs, for my wants, for my appetites. Then if I haven't spent all of it, I might save a little bit of it, which we're really kind of bad at. In fact, I was reading this week that the average 30-year-old saves negative 2% of his or her income. I'm not exactly sure how you call that savings, but you can figure that one out. You get the point. And then if there's anything left over after all of that, I mean, if there's some crumbs left over, maybe, just maybe, I might give that away. I might share that with someone in need. That's kind of how the me first kingdom works. And when we run out and we don't have anything left to give or share, we say, well, hey, maybe there's next year, right? But Jesus says, listen, listen, there's a better way. I want you to seek first God's kingdom. And all that other stuff that you worry about will fall into its right place. So what does that look like? Well, as I said, we need to flip the script. Instead of seeing giving as the last thing that we do, the Bible says we need to see giving as the first thing. We seek first God's kingdom. Now let me say again, I'm only speaking to Christians here, right? People who have decided to make Jesus their Lord. And as Christians, we are to give first as a recognition that God is Lord over our whole lives, including our stuff. And the result, according to Jesus, the result is that everything else will fall into its right place. Seek first his kingdom, Jesus says, and all these things will be given to you as well. So, Bible question. Where did Jesus get this idea of giving first? Well, he got it from right where you might expect it. He got it from his Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. You see, from the very beginning of the story, God's people struggled with the same things that we do. Money was constantly creeping into the center place in their lives. And so God gave them a practice that would help them cultivate generosity and Free them, help them find freedom from being mastered by money. It was a regular habit, a spiritual habit that was called the tithe. Now, maybe you've heard that word before. Mitch mentioned it in one of our previous messages in this series. And it's kind of a churchy word, isn't it? But it simply means this a tithe simply means a tenth. The word tithe literally means tenth or 10%. And so, in the few moments that we have left together this morning, I want to give you a quick crash course a history lesson on God's way of generosity in the scriptures and this idea of giving first and how it leads to freedom. Now, again, let me say one more time, I'm talking to Christians here, those who want to say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. So if that's not you, that's okay. You're off the hook, but I hope that you might listen in because you might discover something here that benefits you as well. We ready? Here we go. Crash course on tithing. Well, a lot of people don't know this, but Israel, God's people in the Bible, actually had three different kinds of tithes. 
What came to be called the first tithe is described in the Old Testament book of Numbers. God says it this way. Listen to it here from the book of Numbers. I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. What's happening here? Well, when Israel occupied the promised land, all the tribes of Israel got land except for one, the tribe of Levi, who would serve in worship. It was a land-based economy, so the other Israelites were to tithe to God, and that would help support the Levites and make worship possible. You see, the Levites were the priests of their, their day. They were the pastors Some people ask, where does the money go that I give to the local church? And a portion of it that is given, like this first tithe, simply goes to make church possible. The programs, the services, the great teaching that you hear from other preachers like Mitch here at Lake Forest. You know, that it's actually something I really love about our church. Lake Forest values an educated clergy. And if you're new to church or you're just checking things out, you might not know this, but all of the preachers, all of the pastors here at Lake Forest Church have dedicated themselves years, years worth of our lives to studying theology, the biblical languages, and training and leading and caring for our congregation, which means that outside of this line of work, I don't have a whole lot of other marketable skills. And so the tithes and offerings that you all give make it possible for us as a church to have a staff of pastors who work full-time to lead and care for the spiritual health of our body. Now, of course, we don't have to do it this way. You could preach on Sundays. In fact, we could have church at your house. But the way that Lake Forest has done it, we have valued the educated clergy, and that first tithe goes to help make that possible. Well, that's just the first tithe, but check this out. I just love this. There's a second tithe that the Old Testament mentions as well in the book of Deuteronomy. It says this, Set aside a tenth, see there it is, the tithe, set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always." See, this tithe was to be used in worship and in celebration. If possible, you were to take it to Jerusalem and have a big party there. That's what it means, and in that way, it was helpful to support the work of the temple. A big part of this second tithe would teach people to celebrate God's goodness. Now listen to this. This is just amazing. God says just a few verses later in that same chapter of Deuteronomy, he says this, Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine or other fermented drink, bojangles or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Now I have to say, I think this is a Bible verse that was hidden from me when I was younger. I know what some of y'all are thinking. You're saying, Aaron, so if I buy alcohol, does that count as a tithe? And the short answer is no, but this is important. God wants people to connect giving and generosity to celebration and joy. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in the New Testament. He writes, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I actually think that this is the real reason behind the objection that so many have to what we're talking about today. 
Some of us grew up in churches. Some of you grew up in churches. And you had this experience where it just felt like your arm was being twisted. You were shamed or compelled to give out of guilt or, or I don't know, something else. And so you've come to resent it when the church talks about money, even though Jesus talked about it all the time. And I get it. Look, I, I get it. I want you to know that. God, but God never intended us to be motivated by guilt or shame. Paul says it clearly. Decide what you are going to give. Talk with your spouse. Put it in the budget. And just say this is what we are going to give. And then do it cheerfully. Do it with joy. Bake a cake. Break out the cheese and wine and have a party. God loves a cheerful giver. But God does not invite us to just experience this joy and freedom for ourselves. He calls us to a lifestyle of generosity, which leads to the third kind of tithe, what became known as the poor tithe. It was collected once every three years so that, as it says in Deuteronomy, here it is, the immigrants, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. You see, God cares so much about the poor in our communities that when farmers were harvesting their crops and some fell on the ground, the law in the Old Testament says that they weren't supposed to collect it. They were to leave it for the poor so that they might have something to eat. You see, built into the very fabric of life for Israel was this notion that not everything I produce, not everything I make, not everything I earn is for my own consumption. It was a way of remembering that the very land they had was a gift from God. And Lake Forest, I just have to tell you what an amazing church y'all really are. This year, thanks to your giving, we have provided meals for orphans in Haiti, roofs for poor families in need in the Bahamas, weekly groceries for families all over Lincoln County, and food to students at East Lincoln, North Lincoln, Lincoln Charter, and St. James Elementary. You see, Lake Forest Church practices this kind of care for the poor by making sure that 10% of every dollar given goes beyond the walls of our church to meet the needs of others locally and globally around the world. So, in the Bible, we see, crash course over, three kinds of tithes. And it's not clear exactly which years each was collected. But that means that by tithing alone, Israel may have given as much as 20 or 23% annually of their giving. So, why, why the tithe here? Why this, this magical number of 10 or a tenth or 10%? I don't really have an answer to that. I can only tell you from my own life a little hypothesis. As I have practiced this in my own life, as my wife and I made this decision decades ago to prioritize giving first, I've noticed something that happens in my own heart. 10% seems to be just enough to ensure that I feel it, just enough that I notice it, just enough that I remember who my real provider is, who it is that is Lord of my life. But there's one more aspect that's really important for us to understand about the tithe in the Old Testament. And that is something that is called the first fruits, generosity. You see, when God instituted the tithe, it wasn't an afterthought. 
It wasn't to be given from the leftovers. He said it was to come first. Look at what he says here. He says, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Giving first, seeking first God's kingdom. You see, in Israel, they lived day by day, just like many of us, year by year. If the ground did not produce crops, my friends, they would die. So, when the Israelite farmers would see the earliest plants and the fruit beginning to appear, they were filled with gratitude. They were filled with joy. It meant that a whole crop was going to follow, and that meant life for them and for their family. So the Israelite farmers would take a little reed. They would tie it around the best and healthiest stalks of those first plants and say, I'm going to give that to God. God gave this to me. I'm going to give the first fruits, the best fruits to God because I'm going to seek first him, seek first his kingdom. That is the first fruits. God invites us to give our first fruits as a way of recognizing that all the fruit in our life comes from him, that he is our master and that he is our Lord. That's what it means to seek first his kingdom. And the truth is, this is a choice that every last one of us has to make. I mean, Jesus said it kind of plainly. He said, you can't have two masters, right? You can't follow Lord Vader and Master Yoda. you got to make a choice, but the choice is yours. It was years ago that my wife and I, when we first got married, and, and boy, uh, it, at that time in life, it felt like every dollar counted, right? We were just stretching those dollars as far as we could. And I remember sitting down with my wife. We didn't have any kids yet. We sat down and we looked at each other and said, are we really serious about this? What kind of relationship are we going to have with money in our lives? Are we really going to practice what the scriptures teach and give first, giving 10%, saving 10%, and living off the rest? Or do we just want to kind of trust our own ability, and maybe if there's some left over at the end of the year, we'll give that to God? And years ago, we made the decision to give first. One of the ways we practice that first fruits giving is simply by doing online giving. Now, it makes it a lot easier. Back in the early days, I had to remember to bring a checkbook or carry that with me. But today, we automate it. We give right out of our paycheck as a way of saying, God, we recognize you first. We seek first your kingdom, believing that every good gift that we have in our lives comes from you. And we want you to be Lord and master over our stuff and over our finances. And I would be lying to you if I told you it has always been easy. It has not. It has not. But over these last 20 plus years, we have enjoyed a kind of confidence in God's provision for us and our family that I believe is directly connected to this fact that we choose to give first. So how about you? How about you? What kind of relationship do you want to have with money in your life? If money were here today and it could talk, it would tell you, I make a great servant, but my friend, I am a terrible master. You cannot serve two masters. Who will you serve? Which one will you choose? Can we pray? Jesus, this is a scary teaching for many of us. In fact, it seems almost easier to trust you to, with our sin, with our brokenness, with our eternal future than it is to trust you with our money and our stuff. Such is the power and pull of money in our culture and our lives. 
But Jesus, we thank you. I thank you that you have given us a path to freedom, a way out, a way forward. And that if we seek first your kingdom, you will provide all that we need in our lives. Jesus, for those who have been practicing that already, uh, I pray that right now through your spirit, they would just sense a job well done, a spiritual high five from you, an attaboy, a keep going. But for those who might be feeling a tug, the money has just created stress and anxiety in their lives and they want to know a different way. Would you give them the courage to take that step? And would you prove faithful to bring the freedom that they long for? I make this prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.